You've tuned in to 96.7 on your FM dial. This program, well, it's QOL, and QOL stands for Quality of Life. It is Hugh Cruzel, and this program is typically broadcast at 6 o'clock on Thursdays on CKLU 96.7 FM. Of course, you can listen synchronously to cklu.ca, or if it's more convenient for you, Join the podcast at any time. Just Google my name, Hugh Cruzel, and the word podcast. You'll find this program and an archive, a library of information available to you at any time that's convenient. Available on at least 12 platforms, including Spotify. My guest today, you know I love to talk about wine. Uh, wine is definitely part of quality of life. My guest today, one of the, ooh, I, I would say he used the word pioneer when he interviewed a very good friend of mine, Don Zeraldo, but Conrad Edgbick is also a pioneer because he wrote one of the first guides to not just Ontario wines, but wines of Canada. Conrad, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is not unusual for you. You appear, in fact, I was calling you, I was going to call you at noon because you're used to being on radio noon, aren't you? That was the old. Well, people hung on your words. You influenced the purchasing habits and the preferences of consumers. It was uh, it was a privilege and it was a huge responsibility too. I'm I'm sure it was because you had to walk that fine line between what you really liked and what you thought the consumers would really like. Not so much about what I liked, but what I discovered because I don't like Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> okay. okay. Let's, let's start out from the very beginning. I will not drink Sauvignon Blanc if I don't have to. If there's water around, I'm, I'm there. But I can taste Sauvignon Blanc, and I can judge it, and I can tell you which are the good ones and which ones are not. Mm. Okay, so so my point was always to showcase great wines and to bring consumers along. Like to say, hey, this is worth trying, and this is local. Well, in fact, when the show started, this was gosh, 25 years ago, we were doing mostly European wines, Beaujolais Nouveau, Burgundy, Hawk, you name it. And at one point, the the show changed its name from Radio Noon to Ontario Today. That's correct. And after that, I thought, well, if it's Ontario Today, we produce wines in Ontario that are of equal quality to any of the wines in the world, except perhaps Port, okay? We just do not have that kind of intense, intense heat, you know, 45 degrees all summer long. That's correct. Um, so, so what I wanted to show Canadians, Ontarians especially, was that we could do anything that anybody else could do just as well and at a similar price, except for cheap wine. And I don't really care about cheap wine. Well, That's we do cheap wine, wine too. <laughs> I'm sorry? We do cheap wine too, the whole cellared in Canada category, which is really not Canadian. But there well, we yeah, are. but I was not, I was not promoting cellared in Canada under any circumstances. That was not no, I, I know you did a whole you did a whole article on that or several. Basically, showing that because and this is the case today, Hugh, is that for someone who doesn't know anything about wine, goes into a liquor store and looks up Canadian wine. It's this product of Canada. You feel confident. Eight times out of ten, the consumer will walk out with a non-Canadian wine. It's a wine made in Canada from foreign juice, grapes, or finished wine. And only two out of ten times, another twenty percent of what's in the actual liquor store is made here in Ontario. Grown, handled, uh, fermented, all the steps and all of it. Yes, getting dense. We're starting with the grapes. The most important part is the grapes. We have we have 
vision, their hopes, their family's wealth on, on growing grapes for the wine industry mm. and growing the best possible grapes. And, and they do. And you and I have been around watching this, this transformation that happened. I, I think you and I actually had first contact right at the old Brayburn Vineyard uh, at, uh, with Don Zeraldo back in maybe 1983 or so. Um, I can tell you that the last time we saw each other was at a wine show. I think it was the International Wine and Food Show in Toronto, and, and your mother was along. So that, that's, a, oh, that's a, some time ago. That was a good time, yeah. That was a good time. My mother very much enjoyed those shows. She, she, she never remembered to spit, and she had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, you know, it was a very, you know, you can't say renaissance because it wasn't. Although some people say, well, there were grapes growing and there was some wine made. But it was the naissance of, of, of the Ontario and Canadian wine industry. And, and you were there and you wrote this book. I mean... It, it it was influential. Well, hopefully, I was part of what I'd like to call the enlightenment. We did. We moved. We moved, and and I remember having a or overhearing a conversation years ago, years and years ago, about nineteen, uh, about nineteen ninety two, ninety three. There was an American winemaker at one of these presentations, and he was talking to Alan Schmidt across the table. Alan Schmidt, the president of Vineland Estate. And, and this American winemaker from the Finger Lakes was saying, how did you do it? How did you guys move to premium wines and, and, and like, suffer the pressure of your consumers who wanted the cheap, crappy Labrusco wines that we used to make? Like, that was a big market. And Alan said, we simply abandoned them. We abandoned them. We decided we're not making that stuff anymore. Whereas the Americans couldn't do that the, or, 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 or didn't feel the, the ability to do that. Their, their consumers keep wanting La Brusca and cheap sweet wines, and that holds back the, the New York industry. Because we've moved forward in a big way. I've noticed, in fact, uh, there was a friend of mine who just sent um, some images of a new winery opening up in Ohio. Uh, La Brusca was one of the grape varieties and uh, um, a number of other unusuals that we used to grow here. Wines that just were not classic, that's for sure. But their event, their place is more of an event center than a winery. And I've noticed this has become... Ah, maybe more de rigueur than, than I'd like to see wineries as destinations, but not necessarily for for celebration of wine, but as wedding centers and things like that. Yeah, and, and banquet centers. And you've got to remember, too, that almost 70% of all wine is consumed in Canada. In Canada, it's more in the States and a little less in Britain, but in Canada... Between 70 and 75% of all wine is consumed without food. Okay, so wine is considered a beverage as opposed to an accompaniment to food. Hmm. The other 25 will, 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 will drink it in a different way. They, they, they cherish the flavors, the aromas, etc. They like to match things with the food. They're, 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 more, they're more gourmand, okay? Mm-hmm. And then you have the, t- the 10%, which are the, the geeks like ourselves, you and me. Okay? <laughs> but, but the most... The greatest part of the of the consuming public simply consider wine a drink with alcohol, but a pleasant drink with alcohol, a, a pleasant way to deliver the alcohol. Wow. Okay. And and that makes wineries have to consider that seventy percent of their market don't give a crap about the taste. Isn't that shocking? Okay. So so really, they need to they need 
Conrad, there there is much more to it. How do we bring those people along to to recognize that there's sunshine and and soil and and rainfall and and a sense of place, terroir, and and start getting them so they don't just say I want a glass of wine. They say I want a glass of Sauvignon. No, no, I want a glass of uh, uh, Negromaro or I want a glass of uh, you know you name it. Right? It could be so many different things. I just you know somebody says, well, how about, do you have any Nebbiolo? And, or or do you have do you have a, a Riesling, my favorite grape Riesling? I mean I don't know if it's your favorite grape, but it sure is mine. Not my favorite grape, but but it's, it's it's a wonderful grape. I'm I'm crazy for Pinot Noir. If you say Pinot Noir, I'll take my pants off for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're on the radio, so I I, I don't know if that would be that's, very valuable. That's but okay, I won't go any further than, than my trousers. <laughs> so you you must I'm love. But they are wanting it. Some, at least, some are. I mean, the the rise of the the wine fridge. I mean, how many kitchens, new kitchens, do I go into? And there's a wine fridge, or even more importantly, or more amazingly, you walk into their dining room or living room, and there's a huge wine refrigerated wine cabinet. I mean, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to disappoint you, <laughs> you. But but that that that's not the one percent. That's about the five five to six percent. Ah. Okay. That have wine fridges. There are a lot of wine fridges out there, but but they are, there are not millions and millions and millions. There no. are only thousands. It's really shocking to look at the numbers globally. How many people are into wine? How many people are actually geeks? Okay. Well, globally, when you think about half the population, half of the population of the earth has either no interest in wine or no clue about it. The other half are the people who do consume wine but don't know anything about it. And then from there, start taking 1%. Right. And those are people who drink it and read about it. And from there, take 1%. And those are the people who are really keen on it. And they're buying Quench Magazine, which you write for, and The Wine Spectator. And uh, really? let's, let's turn, I always do this on my program, let's turn the clock back. Let's turn the clock back to maybe you... Conrad is 15 or 16 or 18, and Conrad discovers wine. I, I actually figured probably wine was on your table as a child. Okay, this is, this is, this is going to be very painful and also <laughs> revealing. Okay, Hugh, and I've not talked about this. Okay, at 15, at 15, I was on a ship to Poland, and alone, alone. My family was here, and I was going to visit some other relatives there. And, and then on the way back at 16, I got my first major major drunk. I did not know how to handle alcohol. When I went to Poland, I didn't know how to handle it, and it caused me serious problems. Um, there, you know, the alcohol, uh, a shot glass is three and a half ounces of vodka, <laughs> right? And I had one once at 15, and I 
And as a result, I, I broke my back in two places. Oh, my goodness. So until I was actually 29, I couldn't stand the, 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 the idea of alcohol and losing control. So I actually avoided alcohol and became a stoner, a hippie, and I smoked up. And that's how I got my pleasure. And at, at, at 29, I discovered a, a, a new way of enjoying alcohol without really thinking about the alcohol, and that was about the taste. I became I became a, a, a taste-obsessed person, and, and I wanted to learn about the taste of different wines and their origins and their grape varieties and how you treat them that result in certain flavors because I was interested in the taste. And for me, even all my life, the alcohol has been um, an obstacle because you can only taste so many wines before, you know, you get hammered and you can't taste anymore. If you swallow, when you're doing the tasting, if the very first glass of wine that you taste, you swallow it, then you can't judge the rest of the wine. Because the first thing goes with alcohol is your sense of judgment. <laughs> so true. It's always been critical for me to be in the wine business, to taste wine, but not to swallow it. And yet, Conrad, so many of the wines today are very alcohol forward. We're seeing uh, Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Sauvignons pushing into the 14.5, 15.5. So, yeah. Yes, we are seeing that from, from Australia. We're, we, we're seeing um, even Pinot Noirs that are not the subtle 13.2. Um, it, it's, it's 14.5. The average now out of Burgundy is 14.5 because the climate has changed so much. In fact, I was, I was looking at a photograph on Instagram a week ago from the Domaine de la Gouchere in, uh, in Burgundy, and uh, Verizon was occurring. Verizon is the, is the moment where the grapes begin to change from green to color red in the case of black grapes and gold in the case of white grapes. Hang on, this is happening and now? It's happening now. It happened a week ago in Burgundy, and that's like three weeks earlier than normal. So at the end of the season, if the end of the season is three or four weeks earlier, do they pick early or do they allow the grapes to remain when they need what's called hang time? Yes. At the point when they're developing not more alcohol but more flavor. Mm -hmm. So if they pick early, they get higher alcohol wines with lower flavor. Problem for Burgundy, right? For the for the globe, we're we're lucky because we're just warming up here. Yes. We've been the frozen country. We're just starting to thaw. Whereas those warm countries and those countries with the, the regions with the perfect weather no longer have perfect weather. And and you and I probably both of us have attended uh, either Zoom conferences or 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 actual physical uh, meetings where people have talked about the impact of, of climate uh, change on, on yep. vineyards. Last year there was a, there was a big conference in Montreal on facing climate change by. Uh, um, um, organized by Michel Bouffard in Quebec, and, and the Globe was there. I mean, uh, Torres, um, Miguel Torres uh, from, from Torres, Spain, uh, talked about how they're looking at vineyards higher up on the mountain. Like, they keep moving, but they're no longer in the plains. They're no longer in the field. They're up the slopes, up the slopes, and now they're looking to the tops of the mountains to find cooler temperatures in order to make drinkable wine. And the diurnal variations that come with altitude and changes of latitude, uh, that's essential to improving the, the overall flavor and not just the, well, and the acidity, the balance, isn't it? Right, right. Well, it's important to have a, a lively, uh, bright, brisk 
But you know, I, oh, yeah. many consumers though do chase the the big big cannons, the the ones that you know your teeth go purple and you you know you smile and your tongue is all that deep deep red. I mean, there are those who chase the the screaming eagles and such. Boy, uh, I, I, I the, the, the sheiks, the princes, and the and the tech, the, the, the fintech owners. <laughs> Not $5,000 a bottle, no. But, you know, the average consumer still can find wines in the under 15, the under 17, the under $20 category. Are you still doing recommendations for various, uh, for consumers? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I, don't have, uh, I don't have a radio show right now. I do uh, reviews for Quench Magazine. I, uh, I recommend wines on Instagram and on Twitter all the time. And I and usually I'll, I'll provide a photograph, not just of the wine, but also of an ideal pairing to give you an idea of not just what a wine is, but how to use it. That's always the thing. Is most people would do more if they knew how to. You list yourself as a travel writer. I imagine that's a big part of your life as well, but wine fits nicely into that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I wasn't always a travel writer, but once you get into wine, and you've discovered all the wines of Ontario and you want to move on to other wines. I mean, at the time that I started, let's say, there were no wines from Ontario. When, when I did my very first tasting of Canadian wine, they were grapes called Delaware, mm-hmm. Aurora, Isabel, Catawba, Redonia, and, of course, our beloved Concord. Uh, not good choices. We sure have. I'm, proud. No. I'm so proud of what we've done. I mean, consider that that I've been writing about wines for 40 years, and at, at, the, at the very beginning of when I was writing, Canadian wines were absolutely undrinkable. Look, they and, were disgusting. And yet we had stores, the Andre's stores, the Bright stores, uh, but... Because we've talked about Ontario quite a lot, uh, how about British Columbia, and what about the other provinces? Have you had a chance to do some explorations there? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I, I'm a member of a travel writer. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was in, I was in British Columbia a couple years ago. I was going to be in there this year, but that didn't work out. I've been in the Atlantic recently, well, a couple years ago. Both areas are coming along brilliantly. British Columbia is now at a stage where it's not just wines of British Columbia, it's not just wines from the Okanagan or Vancouver Island. Like within Vancouver Island, they're starting to create sub-regions. The, the newest one is the Cowichan Valley. Yes. In the Okanagan, they've got, uh, they've got the Golden Mile, and they've got the Naramaka Bench. These are all new sub-regions that are specializing. And that's, that's what happens, is it takes time... You, you grow when you grow grapes. You plant them. It takes three years before you get your first grapes. When you make your wine, your first grapes it takes two years before you can taste your first wine. And to really judge that wine, you've got to let it age five to ten years. So there's already a decade. Okay. Well, now four decades later, we've gone through that process several times and figured out that certain grape varieties are preferable in certain areas. So the Naramata Bench has brilliant Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Down in the South Okanagan, the Golden Valley, we get Cabernet and we get Syrah. And Petit Verdot, yes. But the Pinot Noirs are a little too hot down mm. there. 
Okay, so you see, we're 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 starting to we're starting to triage the reason and the grapes and 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 create better and better. And as we do that, we we raise the bar. We raise the bar. Well, let's go to speaking of raising the bars. How do we ensure that Canadian restaurants, as as we are reopening the economy? Uh, their menus reflect better choices from Canada. How do we we influence those people to then make the offerings to the average consumer? Well, I think that as consumers, when we go into restaurants, we can say, can I see your Canadian wine list, please? Mm-hmm. Not as opposed to your wine list. Can I see your Canadian wine list, please? And then they'll bring you the wine list and say, is this all you have? Is this all you have? Why should I Well, okay. I'm, I'm going to go to a crazy place. That, yeah, I, I'm mystified to it. I'm going to go to a crazy place then because uh, here we are, you know, coming out of lockdown. Who knows where we'll go next? And yet across this country, it is impossible to bring wine, and I hate to use the word import, to bring wine from British Columbia to Ontario. It's not cross-border shopping. <laughs> but it isn't. It's not allowed in Ontario. Just a second, Conrad. Doesn't the LCBO belong to us? Yeah. Isn't, isn't it a store? Yeah. Isn't it a retail op- operation? If I walk into a shoe store and I say, do you have Mephistos from France? They say, yes, or, or we'll get some or, or whatever. But we find a resistance at the LCBO to, to recognize that they are there for the consumer. Ontario. 
Also, I find even, I mean, this is a, a bit of a digression, but I find even on the floor, the retail space, the the salespeople, I use the word salespeople, but they sure don't. You know, if I went into a shoe store again and, and they'd say, well, what size do you want and what color do you like and whatever, I have yet to be asked those questions in the LCBO. some very people, good people. Especially the, the wine lovers, the wine lovers, these people who are in products and selling positions who genuinely love what they do and will do the best they can to help you despite what their own bosses want them to do. Wow. Okay, uh, Conrad, where to next? I mean, things are changing. Things are opening up. I see Air Canada now has flights to France. Uh, last week they opened up flights to Germany. Where are you off to next? see if we can together change some of that by this program, by your writing, by our continuous um, biting at the heels of, of various organizations and the, the hard work of Canadian winemakers and, and the agents that represent them. Yeah, and, and I will say one thing before, before, I don't know how close we are to shutting down, but before you go out to, to consumers, go out and buy your favorite foreign wine, okay? And for the same price, for the same amount of money, buy Canadian comparable wine. If you're buying, for example, Macon from Burgundy, buy a $30 Canadian Chardonnay. If you're buying a Riesling from from Germany, buy a Riesling from Ontario. If you're to buy a Sauvignon Blanc from, from uh, America, buy a Sauvignon Blanc from one of the great Canadian wineries here at the same price and compare. Open both bottles at the same time, compare and see where your real value is. Because I think you'll find the Canadian wines are that's a great challenge for the audience. Uh, thank you very much for that. That and all of this, Conrad. Thank you for your time today. My guest today has been Conrad Edgbick. And Conrad, thank you for appearing here on CKLU 96.7 on your FM dial, the program QOL. Thank you and happy drinking. Oh, hey, definitely. This is Hugh Cruzel, and uh, you can tune in any Thursday at 6 o'clock. Of course, listen synchronously at cklu.ca or podcast. Just Google my name and the word podcast. Thanks, folks. We'll talk to you again soon.